0: Good morning, everybody. I need you to cheer in just a second here. Um, We have been a church for 75 years, and we broke a record last week. Upstairs in Kids Church and in our nursery hallway, we had combined more than 200 kids, 12 and under, for the very first time, which is awesome. (laughs) What's so wonderful is that a number of years ago, a group of people got together and said, hey, these are going to be the values at our church, and these are going to be the strategies at our church, and one of our strategies as a church is to be a place that young families love coming, so thank you for making that a reality. Young families, thank you for showing up and for making babies. I hope that was a lot of fun for you. (laughs) All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for our church family. Thank you for the strategic directions and all the work that went into that. And as we look at one of our values this morning, in the idea of generous worship, may my words fall down so that your words would be lifted up and that you would be glorified in how we give all of ourselves to all of you. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Ever ask yourself those big why questions. Like, do you drive around Edmonton and go, why do people not use their turn signals in this city? Like, I'm born and raised here, and I don't use my turn signals much, and I don't know why. And if you're thinking people use their turn signals here, you're one of the ones who don't. You just think you're doing it. Or maybe you think, why do I live in Edmonton, where for six months of the year, it is freezing cold? Again, born and raised here. Some of you have children to live in this city we have to figure this out but there might be bigger why questions God why don't I have the job that I want why is it that my co-workers who aren't nearly as good at my job as I am get promoted and I'm not why do I keep applying for jobs and I know that I have a good resume and I know that I have good education and I know that I'm a valuable player on the team but I can't get the job that I want maybe there's big questions around the family God, why can't I meet that special someone? God, why can't my partner and I have kids? God, why are my kids estranged from me and they don't want to talk to me? God, why did you take my partner so soon and leave me widowed? Thinking about generous worship. God, why do I give all of myself to all of you? God, do you really want me to sing if I really don't like the songs? God, do you really want me to give because the government's hand already seems deeper in my pocket than I want to admit? God, am I really supposed to serve? And God, I've seen spiritual practices and I remember taking piano lessons as a kid or soccer practice as a kid and I hated it then. Why would spiritual practices be any different? Do you ever think about how that minimum bar of, you know what, I'm already a Christian. Why do I need to do anything else? I've seen that popular verse in John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave up his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Why should I give more than that? But are you thinking that maybe you might be missing out? Maybe God has something so invested for you that if you spend time with him, it will radically change your life. Sticking with the book of John, Jesus says later on, the thief, Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. One of my spiritual authors that I really enjoy, his name is Dallas Willard. He says this, speaking about John 10, 10. Non-discipleship costs something. It costs abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout by love, faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding governance for good, hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances, power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, it costs exactly the abundance of life Jesus said he would come to bring. The only way we get better at anything is through deliberate practice. The way to become a better sales rep is more practice. The way to become a better teacher, more practice. The way to become better at medicine, more practice. The way to grow in your spiritual life is by spiritual practice. Now, we don't have one passage today. We're actually going to look at two passages. Um, We're going to be in John chapter 5 and in Mark chapter 10. So if you want to flip there and put your finger in one place or a piece of paper, uh, we're going to start in John chapter 5. But for the note takers in the room, it starts with this. What are you longing for? I remember being a young kid, probably like 10-ish years old, and my mom would buy me those choose-your-own-adventure books. Did any of you read those growing up? And you would read something like this. You witness some small kids breaking into the neighbor's house, and all they leave with is a special book. Do you A, turn to page 20 and follow them on your bike. Or B, call the cops and turn to page 40. Or C, do nothing and see what happens. I love those things. And basically today, we're looking at a choose your own adventure sermon. What are you most longing for? God, give me peace. God, I want wisdom and a depth of understanding. God, give me really great friendships. God, when I read Galatians 5 and I hear about this idea of the fruit of the Spirit and love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, give me some of that. What are you most deeply longing for? In both John chapter 5 and in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is traveling with his disciples. And in both situations, they run into somebody who is a little bit sick. This is what we read in John chapter 5, picking up right in verse 1. After this, there was a feast for the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed, One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there quite a long time, he said, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps before me. Do you see what's happening there? Do you see what's taking place? So Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. They're going to Jerusalem. There's a place where a whole bunch of those who are in special needs all hang out together. And Jesus sees one person in particular. And he looks at that one person. He says, do you want help? Now, if that was us, we would say, of course we want help. Heal my chronic pain. Heal my chronic fatigue. Give me immediate LASIK eye surgery. Make my body whole. But what does this individual do? The God of the universe is walking into where he's spending time and says, do you want to be healed? And he just goes, but people go in there before me. And you think, what are you doing? This man wants to heal you. Contrast that with this. Mark chapter 10, we're not at the beginning of the passage. We're actually at the very end, picking up in verse 46. Jesus and his disciples come to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him, be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus, and Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? So the questions are nearly identical. And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him along the way. Both circumstances are very similar. In both circumstances, Jesus is traveling along with his disciples. They run into somebody who is sick. And Jesus says, what can I do for you? But the situations are different. The man in Mark chapter 10 recognizes if I hang out with where everybody else is, I'll just be one of the crowd and I might not get an opportunity. But I know that if I stand outside the city gate, people are going to be coming and going all the time. And I can cry out for help. And he finds out that Jesus, this miracle worker, is coming around. And that Jesus has been healing people. He's been casting out demons. He's been restoring lives. And so this man cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. But he doesn't just say it once. You'll notice if you have the passage open in front of you. He says it again and again and again. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You notice in verse 48, many rebuked him. Be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. He knew what he was longing for. He knew that if he cried out to Jesus, he knew that if he cried out to this miracle worker, this man would heal him. This man would restore him. And eventually he gets Jesus' attention and he's healed. So what are you longing for? If you're a note taker or maybe you grab your phone and write something down in your notes, what is it that you're longing for? Are you longing for relationships to be healed? Are you longing to grow in wisdom and knowledge and understanding? Are you saying, God, take away all this anxiety I feel, just give me peace? Are you longing to be filled with the fruit of the Spirit and wondering, what does that look like? What does that mean? If you were to go to college or university and take a philosophy course, I'm guessing most introductory philosophy courses would start with the same story of Socrates and the fool. If you haven't heard the story, it's a great one. A fool walks up to the wise philosopher Socrates and says to him, give me wisdom. And Socrates, without saying a word, grabs him by the hand and takes him into a nearby lake until they're about chest deep and says, what is it that you would like from me? And this young man says, give me wisdom. And Socrates puts his hand on him and shoves him under the water. The guy starts flailing a little bit and he lets him back up. And Socrates says, what do you want? And he says, give me wisdom. And Socrates shoves him underwater a second time. 20, 30 seconds go by and he lets him back up. Socrates asks him again, what do you want? And he says, give me wisdom. And again, he shoves him under the water. This time for 30, 40 seconds, the man comes sputtering up. Socrates says, what do you want? And he says, air, give me air. And Socrates says, until you desire wisdom as much as you desire air, you will never get it. What are you longing for? Do you want to draw closer to Jesus? And if you do, what does that look like? I think often when we talk about the breadth of spiritual practices, we sometimes leave out our extroverted friends. And so uh, we're going to look at seven spiritual practices together. And extroverts, I've thought about you, but that doesn't leave the introverts off the hook, and nor does it leave the extroverts off the hook. When you see these seven spiritual practices, I don't expect you to practice all of them. But are there one or two that really grab you? One or two that you make you think, that's something I want to try. Another wonderful author who talks regularly about devotional thoughts and spiritual things, Richard Foster writes, the purpose of spiritual disciplines, the practices, is the total transformation of the person. They aim at replacing old destructive habits of thought with new and life-giving habits. So where do we begin? Silence and solitude. Sometimes you hear this and you might think, oh, that's just for those introverts or the contemplatives or for monks in a monastery. But my friends, it is for... Everyone. Think about how much noise and media we take on nearly every day. We've got media going on in the background. We're listening to Spotify. We're listening to radio. We've got Netflix going on just because it can. We've got the hockey game or the football game or HGTV taking place. And we're just inundated with all of this noise and with all of this sound because when silence is there, we don't know if we feel comfortable. But there's something beautiful about that silence, it gives us that opportunity to think and to have God speak to us. The psalmist writes this in Psalm 62. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall, be, I shall not be greatly shaken. Over the last few weeks, we've been advertising the Global Leadership Summit. We didn't advertise it today, but if you are interested, it is fantastic. Because we're a host church, we get about 50% off. I would certainly encourage you to come if you can. It's going to be October 19th and 20th. I was at GLS a number of years ago and one of the speakers there talked about this idea of white space. And she said, we're so busy with work. We're so busy with family. We're so busy with special events and everything that's going on in our lives that we don't give ourselves any chance to sit back and to think. So schedule in some white space. Some time to think, some time to be quiet, some time to reflect and to study. This is a a well-educated, very successful businesswoman, but she may as well have been a preacher. Do we have that time that we set aside for silence and solitude? You don't need to go to a retreat center. You might be in a car ride for more than 30 minutes and thinking, this is what I need. No radio, no podcast, no XM stuff going on, just me and God kind of attached to that is this idea of fasting. I'm really proud of our church that over the last couple of years, we've taken that season heading into Easter, often referred to as Lent, as a time in which we practice these Lenten practices. And we've talked about what is that something that we can give up as a reminder of what, everything that God gave up for us. And we've talked about things like giving up um, sweets or giving up TV or giving up media for a time or giving up background music. What is it that you can fast from? And it might be a meal um, every lunch, uh, one lunch a week or something of that sort. It might be a breakfast one time a week. It might be media. It might say no um, Netflix for this week or something of that sort. But it's that opportunity mixed with silence and solitude to come together and say, God, I want to hear from you. I know that you have something so much better to offer me than what this world has to offer me. Another classic author, G.K. Chesterton, at the end of his book, Orthodoxy, he says, one of the things that I find most difficult is spending time with God. And yet when I finally get around to it and spending time with my Bible and in prayer, I realize the sweetness to the soul that it brings for me. For the experts in the room, what about community? One of my Desires for us as a church, and we don't talk about this publicly, but I share it with Joel and David regularly, is that every single person who attends our church would have at least one meaningful relationship. We call them the 2 a.m. friend. Maybe your spouse is having a really difficult health situation, and at 2 a.m. you call your friend and say, I need you to come to my house and watch my kids because I got to take my spouse to the hospital. It's that person that you can call when things go really south at work, that you can just connect with and say, what do I do? Can you just listen to me? Can you make me laugh? Can you be somebody that spends time with me? It's really interesting going through the gospels and recognizing the different levels of community that Jesus is involved with. So think about this. Jesus has a one-on-one relationship with God the Father. We see regularly that while it was still dark, Jesus went off by himself and prayed. We see regularly that Jesus is spending time with James, Peter, and Paul. Um, Pardon me, um, James, Peter, and John. And that at Ellerslie, we call that a triad, being together with three or four or five other people. And these were his closest friends. We see regularly that Jesus is with the disciples. That would be the equivalent of a small group. We see regularly that Jesus is with the 72 disciples. That would be the equivalent of ladies morning out or youth group or prime time, where Jesus is with a larger group of people. We also see him regularly in worship. A helpful book that I read a couple of years ago was Discipleship That Fits. Not everybody is wired for really large group or big group or small group or triad, but you're probably wired for one of them. What is the community that you wanna be a part of? That famous verse from Proverbs, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. What about meditation? Meditation has gained a lot of traction over the last couple of years as Eastern religions are coming um, into Canada. And maybe you wonder, or you've heard people talk about meditation, and you wonder, what does that mean? What does that look like for Christians? This next slide is helpful to understand. Eastern meditation is about an emptying out. Christian meditation is about a filling up. And so when you talk to people who might be from um, the East, whether they're Taoist or Buddhist or Confucianist or something of that sort, they talk about being emptying out in a state of nirvana. But with Christianity, it's radically different. The psalmist and the longest chapter in the scripture says this, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. There is this filling up that takes place. When I was in Bible college, one of the things we needed to do to graduate was have a certain amount of devotional credits. And so I pulled aside my, my favorite professor and I said, hey, would you be willing to do a directed study one-on-one with me about Christian meditation? I'm curious how this works. And so he said, sure. And he gave me a couple books to read, but he said, really what I want you to do, Dave, is three times a week for no less than 30 minutes is to meditate on God. And then I want you to journal what you're taking down. And then at the end of the semester, we'll look at what you've journaled. And he said, Dave, flip through these pages. And the further along you get, the more and more you talk about peace. The washing away of anxiety. The power of meditation. Within that same idea is the whole idea of journaling. Now, when um, you're not gonna see journaling down in the scriptures as a spiritual practice because I don't think the average person had access to papyrus and squid ink, but for most of us, we can go to the Dollarama and pick up a scribbler and a couple pens and write it down. I wish I would have journaled more during COVID and when I first became lead pastor. And I think about all of the learning that took place during those opening months of COVID. How is the church acting? What is the church doing? What can we learn? What can we do more effectively next time? um, As a lead pastor, I was wondering, how do I engage more effectively with leadership? What does this look like? How do I lead the staff in my own natural way that's different than my predecessor? What does that look like? And for many of you, there's value in doing that. You think about the relationships that you're going through. And maybe you like to take bullet points, but there's something about writing down your thoughts and putting them into place, saying, this is what I'm learning. Another opportunity is that of serving. During the sermon series on generous worship, we talked about serving a couple of weeks ago and looked at that beautiful passage of scripture from Philippians 2, the Christ hymn. So I'm not going to go into a great amount of detail here. But serving is a spiritual practice. Where would you like to serve inside the church or outside the church? Can you coach hockey or soccer? Maybe you have the ability to teach piano lessons or maybe you wanna be on um, a PAT or, or be involved in your, um, your homeowners association or something of that sort. Uh, last week, Pastor Joel was preaching and then in the first service, I spent the first couple of minutes just walking around, seeing what was taking place and I went upstairs to see all those kids in kids' church and all the excitement that was taking place up there and something struck me. It's one thing to have Pastor Kelsey, who's awesome, but our team members upstairs are fantastic. I'm looking around and I'm seeing doctors, engineers, government workers, people who have given their whole lives to the marketplace, but saying on Sunday morning, I'm going to build into these kids. Our kids are well taken care of upstairs. Last one. How many of you are practicing the Sabbath? God thinks this is so important. He put it as part of his top 10 list. This is from Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Do you know how freeing that is? I love the Sabbath. (laughs) I get home from work on Friday, and uh, from Friday when I walk in the door till Saturday night, I don't check my email, I don't respond to a lot of texts. It's a time for me to be fully engaged with the family. There's no emails, uh, there's no worrying about different phone calls, I'll let them go to voicemail unless I think I need to pick it up. And I recognize that we can't always practice it. I realize that for teachers, there's report card season, for accountants, there's tax season, for construction workers, there's summer, I totally get it. But as a general rule, do you practice the Sabbath? This is a wonderful time to stay away from work and spend time with your friends, spend time with your family, spend time um, being rested and refreshed for what works best for you. One of the best definitions I ever heard of Sabbath is this, if it feels like work, don't do it. My wife loves being in the garden. I hate it. And so that Sabbath for her, I'll take the kids to the park and you can hang out there. What is Sabbath? What is restorative? Now you might be looking at the list of the seven different ideas that I put up on the screen and thinking there's nothing there about Bible reading and prayer. Well, that's what I wanna focus on next. It's one thing to look at those seven spiritual practices, which by no means is an exhaustive list. It's another thing to say, okay, I'm gonna focus on scripture and prayer. What does that look like for you, I'm going to run through a couple acronyms pretty quickly. I like them. They make sense to me. Um, but it starts with this. Pick a time, pick a place, pick a plan, pick a time. When are you going to spend time with God? Is it going to be first thing in the morning and your alarm goes off and you get up and that's your God time? Is it going to be at noon? I had a friend who um, probably still does. Every uh, lunch hour, he goes and he sits by himself and he spends half an hour with God. That's his God time. Maybe it's right when you get home from work. Maybe it's right before you go to bed. Pick a time. And don't try to be impressed with the people who spend an hour or two hours a day. Start small. Start with five, ten minutes. I'll tell you in a moment just how to do that. Pick a place. Hey, this is exactly like practicing anything, whether you're practicing a sport, practicing an instrument, um, practicing dance, whatever the case might be, pick a time, pick a place. I'd become a full-time pastor. I was working in High River and I thought, okay, being a full-time pastor, I wanna have a regular God time. I'm gonna do it first thing in the morning so my alarm would go off, I'd roll out of bed, I'd walk into the living room, I'd sit in my recliner and I would promptly fall back asleep. And I quickly realized first thing in the morning isn't going to work for me. That's fine. I was going to find a different time in a different place. What works best for you? Finally, pick a plan. In the same way that if you were to start an exercise regime, you would figure it out. You're going to work out in your basement. You're going to run. You're going to go to the gym. You're going to know exactly what that looks like. It's the same thing with reading the scriptures. What kind of plan do you want to have? Um, If you're wondering, Dave, I don't even know where to start. We regularly talk about the Bible app. If you open the Bible app, right at the bottom of it, it will have plans for you to read. But if you're like, ah, I'm too lazy, I won't even do that. Well, let me hear you right now. Today is October 1st. There's 31 days in the month. There's 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. Read a proverb a day. And sneak peek, our next sermon series is on the wisdom literature. Proverbs, um, Ecclesiastes, Job. So with the Proverbs that we read, uh, you'll be interacting with as well regularly in your time. Maybe you want to start in the New Testament. Pick up the Gospel of Mark. Start there. It's action-packed. The passages happen quickly. And then from Mark, go to Acts and the rest of the New Testament. John Ortberg has maybe the best quote on Bible reading I've ever read. I think about it regularly. The goal is not for us to get through the scriptures. The goal is for the scriptures to get through us. Don't worry about people who read the Bible in a year or the Bible every 90 days or anything of that sort. What is most beneficial for you? Is it a passage a day? Is it a chapter a day? Is it five chapters a day or more? What works best for you? Now you might be thinking, well, Dave, how do I do that? Here come the acronyms. The first acronym is SOAP. The S stands for Scripture. So you pick up the Gospel of Mark, you read through it, you think, wow, this is amazing. In chapter 1, he casts out demons. In chapter 1, he's doing all sorts of amazing miracles. And you keep on reading, and eventually you get to Mark chapter 10. And you read about this blind man on the side of the road who's waiting for Jesus, and he's calling out. And that O part of the acronym stands for observation. And you're watching him and you're thinking, this guy really wants to meet Jesus. This guy wants to be healed. This guy knows what he's longing for and finds it answered in Jesus coming out of Jericho on the way to the next town he's going to. The application then you look at is, what is this passage teaching me? What is this passage teaching me about myself? What is this passage teaching me about God? What is this passage teaching me about the community or the world that I live in? And recognizing I don't know if I desire God as much as this blind man did. God, fill me with a desire for your word. God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. God, I know you promise peace. Give me peace that you offer. I want that for myself. The P stands for prayer. And so you recognize that as you're reading, as you're seeing it, how it applies to your life, that you start praying through it yourself. This is called praying the scriptures. It keeps the focus off of our own um, internal needs all the time and helps us to recognize in this breadth of the Holy Scriptures, there is so much to think about as we pray for ourselves, as we pray for our neighbors, as we pray for our church, and many other things besides. I really like acronyms, so we're going to keep rolling with one. Dave, how do you pray? Uh, Perhaps you've heard this acronym before. It's uh, ACTS. The A is alignment. It's one thing to pray, and I think most of us do that quite regularly, but sometimes all we do is ask for stuff. And we pray and we say, God, please um, heal my knee, heal my eyes, heal my uh, sore flu, uh, heal my friends, do some work in my family. And you recognize all you're doing is asking for things. And God is just some cosmic vending machine in which you put in your loony and you hope that your prayer request takes place. But God wants a relationship with us. When you go for coffee with your friends or maybe have somebody over for dessert on a Friday night, what's one of the first things you say? How are you doing? And you want to hear. You want to hear how they're doing. You want to hear how things are going at work. You want to hear how things are going in their family. It's the same thing with God. The king of the universe wants to have a relationship with you. The sea is confession. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know we've fallen short. God knows we've fallen short. Confess your sins. God forgive me for I lost patience this past week. God forgive me because I didn't give my best at work. God forgive me because I didn't treat that person the way they deserve to be treated and I know I can do better. The T is thanksgiving. It's easy to look around and to go, oh wow, that person has so much more and I wish I had a nicer house or a nicer car, or nicer clothes or things of that sort. But do we stop and realize how much wonderful stuff God has given us? Do we stop and realize that we have food, even with inflation prices? To the best of my knowledge, everyone in our church has a roof over their heads. We have transportation, whether we own it ourselves or whether it's public transportation. Outside of the spiritual realm, think about this, Harvard Health... Um, discovered this in positive psychology research gratitude is strongly and consistently associated with greater happiness gratitude helps people feel more positive emotions relish good experiences improve their health deal with adversity and build stronger relationships just through thanksgiving the S yes is the supplication the S yes is when we bring our requests to God God help me to grow to be more like you God, help me to understand or to have the wisdom for that difficult situation at work. God, this is how I want to pray for my family. God, this is what the things that I want to see you do in my life. And may it bring glory to you. I want to invite the worship team to come join me on the platform here and the prayer team to come forward as well. You know... It's our desire that every passage that we preach, every sermon that we preach would point to Jesus. And there's a number of different ways we can do that. There's kind of a typology. And we've talked a lot about Moses over the last little while. And we can see how Moses points to a greater, um, Jesus is the greater Moses. We can see how there's a promise and a fulfillment that there's the promise of being delivered from Egypt, just like there's the greater promise of fulfillment of being delivered from sin. And you might look at a passage like this or a sermon like this and say, how does the spiritual practices point us to Jesus? Beautifully so. Because we recognize that in our deepest longings, God is saying, I am your answer. I am the one who wants to meet with you. If you're anxious, I will give you peace. If you're worried, I am the one who will take your worries away. Keep your eyes focused on me. I will answer the deepest longings of your heart. A hundred years ago, Helen Lemel wrote the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. It's a song I think about fairly regularly, and it has that chorus. Maybe you've heard it before. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. This is the promise that the spiritual practices have to offer us. And they find their fulfillment in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the people who worked so hard developing our five values. And as we wrap up this sermon series on generous worship, may we be a people who give all of ourselves to all of you. May we be encouraged and challenged to give ourselves to a brand new spiritual practice, whatever that might be, or to re-engage with the spiritual practices we were already being a part of. And God, may we find that the more time we spend with you, the more that our greatest longings are answered. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.